if I was having a conversation with you, let's say it was a 15-minute conversation, and within that 15 minutes, I was to repeat the same sentiment seven times. So on average, that's like once every couple minutes, right? Just I, I say it over and over again. 15 minutes, short conversation. You heard seven times the same thing out of my mouth. You would probably think one of two things. You'd think, one, I was fixated on an idea and maybe annoying, right? Man, that dude, that's all he ever talks about. Uh, but I would hope, maybe better than that, if it was a good thing to say seven times over again, you'd, you'd at least get this. The idea is really important to me. Right? The idea is really important. This guy won't shut up about it. Uh, and, and so I was reading through the first, this whole first letter, the first John letter. It took about 15 minutes for me to read through it uh, at a pretty good clip, right? And uh, in that reading... And just barely into Second John, John mentions the idea of loving your brother seven times. Seven times within 15 minutes. So clearly, it's important to him, right? It's important to him. And there's a good reason why it's important to John. John spent time with Jesus, and it was really important to Jesus. Jesus talks about this idea Many, many times as well. You might recall that when asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus answered this way. This is Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Right? So he boiled it down to two really important concepts. Loving God, loving others. And he said everything else depends on this. And so what John is, is doing here is he spends much of his time and energy explaining why the second commandment, loving your brother as yourself, is like the first. He, he's, he's just trying to echo what, what Jesus has said in his presence many, many times. And in fact, he, he explains both commands. Right? What does it mean to love God? And what does it mean to love your brothers? He, he dwells on, on both of these. And we've been doing that again for the past couple of months. These topics have come up several times already in our course of studying through 1 John. Uh, but today's passage, which Natalie just read, I think is sort of the perfect summation of all of it. If you took those seven mentions and you, and you distilled them all down to, what, if you could say it in a sentence or two, what is John getting at? These are the, this is the sentence or two right here, these verses that we're looking at today. Uh, and I mentioned a couple weeks ago, right before Easter, I said when we get back from Easter and we get back into 1 John and I get to this text, that I was going to take the theology that we've talked about, and we have, we've talked about the theology of what does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love others. We've looked at that sort of in this big picture theological level. And I said, but when we get back after Easter and get back into this text, we're going to bring it down to the street and we're going to put some feet to it. Uh, we're going to get a little bit more practical with it. And uh, again, that's, that's where we're at today. That's my intention. So here's my outline, okay? Here's the, the three sections of the sermon today. The first one is we're going to make a few observations about uh, this text, this, this summation of the theology of love that John gives us here in 1 John 4. And then secondly, I'm going to talk about how to put it into practice in a really practical way, okay? We're just going to get a little bit dirty with it and say, look, what, do, what does it mean to do it, this? Um, and then thirdly, uh, we'll talk about some specific examples that are relevant to our, our context. Uh, this is some of the stuff I mentioned before that God's been processing in me and in you. This is born out of conversations here in Edgewater, in this local community, as we've been talking uh, together. And I've asked questions about what, what does it look like to love one another? Uh, these are some of the things that have, have popped up. We'll, we'll deal with some of those. Okay? So few observations about the theology. Let's talk about how to do it, and then let's give some practical examples. Let's start with the, the textual observations here, all right? A few textual observations. Look back, look back at the text. Let's, let's look at verses 7 and 8 again and, and just read them. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. All right, so there's, there's three things that I, I'm pulling out in just terms of observations from these verses. The first one is this. Uh, brotherly love is the evidence of our salvation. Okay? Brotherly love is the evidence of our salvation. You could say it's an evidence. Uh, that would be appropriate too. Uh, it's not the only evidence, but it's a big one, right? It is the, I, that's why I'll say the. It's the evidence of our salvation. Verse 7 starts with a, a salutation, beloved, right? Now listen, don't, don't miss this. I think it's critically important to see the bookends of verses 7 and 8 as, as the, the foundational truth that stands underneath everything that John is saying about Christian love for one another, okay? Uh, why should you love one another? Because you're loved by God. Beloved. That's what that means. You are loved by God. That's a huge part of the foundation here. And why are you loved by God? Well, look at the other bookend at the end of verse 8. Because God is love. You are loved by God. Why? Because that's who God is. He is love. He's not just telling us something about God's qualities or attributes here, the Apostle John. He's telling us something about God's nature. His very nature. In other words, it's not just that God loves us, but rather the point is that God actually is love. He is the very definition of love. Think about the nature of the Trinity. We're talking about nature, the nature of God. We know God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's, let's just think about their nature for a minute. Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally, you can wrap your mind around that, eternally existing in relationship. Which means if you go back before you or I or anybody else showed up, any other part of creation showed up, for eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit are existing in relationship. What kind of relationship? Well, everything we're told about them in Scripture points to this. It is a perfectly loving relationship. It is a self-giving relationship. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Father and loves the Son. And There's just this reciprocal, ongoing, eternally satisfying, giving relationship. And it never ceases to display that pure and perfect love. There's, there's no wavering in the commitment between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to the well-being of the other, to, to the object of their affection. It's, a, it's an unwavering commitment that never, ever, ever diminishes forever. I mean, can you wrap your mind around that? You, you can try, right? But you just kind of scratch that, and you can scratch it enough to go, wow, <laughs> that's about as far as we can get. That's far enough, I think, for our purposes. Wow, right? So God loves within his own being because it's his nature to love. That's who he is. And so when John calls us beloved, there's a divine weight to that. So I said, don't miss that. We could read right over that. We don't even use that word that much. Beloved, okay, whatever. What's the name? Don't miss the weight of what he's saying here. Um, can, I, can I just ask you a personal question? You don't have to answer out loud. <laughs> Might be awkward if you do. Do you doubt God's love for you today? Do you doubt it? And I want to tell you why you shouldn't, okay? If you, if you answered to any degree, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I definitely. Let me tell you why, Christian, you shouldn't doubt God's love for you. Because if you deny God's love for you, you're denying the very nature of God. Do you, do you understand that? Because we do doubt it, don't we? We'll doubt it sometimes. We'll doubt God's love. And, and I just want you to really grasp that. If, if what John's saying here is true, and it is, God is love. 
To deny God's love for you or for us is to deny the very nature of God. In other words, you can't deny it. It's impossible for God not to love you, Christian, because he is, in fact, love. You'd repudiate God's character to say God doesn't love me. I just want you to let that sink in for a moment. That's, that's, that's amazing, right? Just let that sink in for a moment. God doesn't love you because you're worthy. He doesn't love you because you're attractive to Him in some way. He doesn't love you because you've earned it. No, God's perfect love, and, and, and there, we mentioned earlier there's three kinds of love in the Bible. This is the, the, the purest, most strong form, agape love. This is, this is the love he's talking about. God's perfect agape love can't be earned or deserved. It exists because it's just God's nature to love, period. That's awesome. And that's what John wants us to understand here. And with that in mind, then the rest of verses 7 and 8 can be rightly understood. To, to love one another and to really love one another as John is defining love then is to tap in to the source of all love. Tapping into God himself, right? To, to, be, to be fully tapped into the source is God and it's to be then, as John says, to be born of God and to know God, that's what it means when I'm saying being tapped in. You can, you can understand what he's asking of us here if we understand the nature of God. So John's saying, look, if, if, you're, if you're at all tapped into the source, you are rooted in the actual nature of love. And if you don't love, you don't, you can't know God. Because that's who God is. It makes sense. Now, John makes clear, just, just to help us really understand what he's saying when he talks about what it means to, to be born of God and to know God, he makes clear what it means to be born of God and know God throughout the rest of the letter. If you look down to chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Right? To, to be born of God and to know God, it looks like this. To believe in the name of Jesus is how you're born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 1 John chapter 2, if you look back, chapter 2, verse 3, and by this, we know that we've come to know him. What does it mean to know God? If we keep his commandments, he says there. And we look down a little further in chapter 3, verse 23, what's the commandment? Here it is. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he commanded us. To be born of God and to know God, in other words, is to be a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus is to be a lover of the brothers and the sisters in the family of God. So the bottom line is simply this. Love is a clear evidence of our salvation. To know God is to know Jesus and to know Jesus is to love one another. Therefore, love is an evidence that you know Jesus, that you're truly born of God. It's an evidence of our salvation. Now, you might say this. You might say, okay, so to, to, to love then is evidence of salvation. What about non-Christians that I see who are loving? Aren't there people who don't know God, who aren't born of God, who don't follow Jesus, who, who, are, who are capable of loving one another and demonstrate that on a daily basis? I've seen non-Christians love one another, so what do we do with that? Well, that's a good question. Here's how I'd respond, and I think this is what John would probably respond with. You should thank God for that. It's a reminder of the common grace of God. It's also a reminder that, that humanity is created in the image of God. We still bear that image. So God is love, all humanity bearing that image. Broken as it may be, there's still that evidence of love. The source of love is God. So yes, you've seen non-believers love other people. That is common grace and the image of God on display. But it's, it's, it's broken in all of us. And that's not quite what John is getting at here. Not just that level of love. He's got something more specific than just common grace in mind here. I like what, what David Jackman says. He's a, he's a British commentator. He says, Since God is love, 
All of our definitions of what love is and how it behaves must be drawn from him if they're to accord at all with reality. That's a great quote. So here's the Apostle John's defining the kind of love he's referring to. This is, this is reality love right here. It's the second observation. It's that brotherly love is rooted in the gospel itself. Okay, It's an evidence of our salvation. That's the first observation. But the second one is that it's, it's rooted. The kind of love he's really talking about here is rooted in the gospel itself. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John's saying here is the the kind of love that gives evidence to a true relationship with God is a love that is demonstrated in actions that are seeking the benefit of others even to the point of self-sacrifice, right? This isn't any shallow kind of love we're talking about here. It is a, it's a love that, that displayed through the gospel is a love that seeks the best of others to the point of self-sacrifice. And to understand that love, John said, you got to look at the cross. We have to look at the cross of Christ. This is God's definition of love, John says. Just as, as the life of God was made manifest in the birth of Jesus. Remember we saw that back in in chapter 1, verse 2? The the, the life was made manifest at the appearing of Jesus. That's where life was made manifest. Love was made manifest not in the birth, but in the death of Jesus. That's what he's saying here in chapter 4, verse 9. And here's the thing. Just just try to focus in on what, what kind of love is being displayed here. This is not a reciprocal love. Right? It's not that we loved God, and so he said, oh, that's great. I'll meet you halfway. I'll love you too. It's not like that at all. It was one-way love. That's why he says here in verse 10, it's not that we loved God. He loved us. Jesus died so that we might have our sin forgiven. We're sinners. We're, we're separated from God. That means we were enemies of God, and yet he still acted benevolently towards us. In that condition. And this benevolence resulted in his own son's death. His one and only son, mind you. That's what he says there. His his only son. It's a a reminder of what he said in John 3.16. God sent his one and only son. There's there's weight to that. There's a a, a means to draw us into understanding that this, this cost God something. It cost him dearly. Jesus being the propitiation for our sin means that he, he suffered the wrath of God against our sin on our behalf. And that wrath, again, this is hard to wrap your mind around, but that wrath that he suffered for us tore apart the eternal relationship between father and son. It broke that. The father turned his face away for something that had never happened. In, and we can't even put a time frame on that because eternity outside of time was, was ripped for Jesus to love us at the cross the way that he did. It costs immensely. There's no greater pain has ever been experienced than, than that moment when the father and son were separated and the father turned his face. No greater pain has ever been experienced and no greater love, what John's saying here is, and no greater love has ever been exercised or seen. If we look at Philippians 2, and you don't have to, I'll, I'll just I'll read it for you. But there's a description of the length at which Jesus went to, to to humble himself in order to love us like that. Just, just listen to some of these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That, I, again, another word where you don't want to gloss over that. And really grasp what, what he's saying. Jesus is fully God. Fully God. And yet he didn't 
consider that reality a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Now, you can empty yourself and you'll never come close to the amount of effort and energy it takes to empty perfection. But he emptied himself to to the point of death. That's a significant thing. He took on the form of a servant. The God of the universe became a humble servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross, which is to say the worst kind of death you could even have. The criminal's death, the, 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 the shameful, uh, complete lack of dignity in that death. This is the extent to which Jesus' emptying himself was poured out to show us love. And the result of that sacrificial love, John says in verse 9, was to give you life. His emptying death was to give you life. I love that. True God as God defines it is is a self-emptying love then in order to give life to others. That's what Jesus demonstrated for us. If, if, If we can grasp that, And again, I I don't know how well, it's so hard to grasp that, uh, to understand the depths of that. But if we can begin to do that, and we're honest, we have to admit that that definition of love is completely unnatural to us. It's unnatural to our self-seeking sinful flesh, because we like to ask this question, what's in it for me? Right? I mean, even even some of the most... um, what you might call pure motives for the love that you give out. And we're talking the love that, that you would give out to, the, to a spouse, right? The love that you would give out to a family member. You, you're still tempted regularly to ask the question, what's in it for me? And, and I know that's true for myself, and I'll, I'll assume uh, with 100% certainty that it's true for you. Uh, because this, because I know that when I fail to see what's in it for me, Oftentimes that affects the level of love I'm willing to give, <laughs> right? We ask that question, what's in it for me? We love others naturally because they give us a reason to love them. That makes it a little easier. I love you because you're lovable, right? I love you because you love me. And, and God says, no, that's not, that's not my love. Love one another because I have loved you. Not because they're lovable. Not because they love you. But because I love you. And again, remember who you are and were at the point of receiving the love of God. Unworthy, undeserving, unlovable, an enemy. And yet, that's the motive that God says, my love for you in that state motivates you to love others regardless of their condition, their lovability, their deservedness. And it's not possible to do that. It's not possible to do that apart from being born of God and apart from knowing God through the Gospel. It's not possible we think it's possible, but it's, 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 it's not. <laughs> because our flesh is so bent towards, even in the most minute little ways, even in the ways that, that, are, that are sort of hidden in the back of our mind, that we don't, we don't see our heart motives or, or the, the reasoning coming out, we're so bent towards, what's in it for me? And God has something totally else in mind here. So these two observations, brotherly love is the evidence of our salvation. Brotherly love is rooted in the gospel, not just here to tell us what's expected of us, but also to encourage us with what you're capable of. Because that might be the question you're going, that's going through your mind right now. Okay, I, I, guess, I guess that's what we're expected to do. Am I capable of that? It's possible, entirely possible, through the gospel And we need to figure out more about what that means here, and we will as we continue to go through. But it's not just what we're expected of, but what we're capable of. And and it's it's to be, John's saying, you were born again 
to be tapped into the source. This is why you're capable. You, You were born anew, and that's happened, Christian, to be tapped into the source, the love of God, which is displayed for you perfectly through the gospel and, and be, being tapped in then, being tapped in means to be a true tap. You know what a tap is? When somebody says you're tapped in, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a spigot, right? You tap it into a tree and, and, and what like syrup comes out, right? Sap comes out. You, you have a tap in your kitchen faucet and you, you open it up and stuff comes out, right? Because tapped into the water supply. That's the point. You're tapped into God. You're tapped into the source. So you're supposed to then flow. It can come out of you. It pours out. And that's the third observation here. Brotherly love makes the invisible God visible to the world. Look at verses 11 and 12. So here's the, here's the call to action, right? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The whole point of God doing this for you was that his glory would not be just deposited in your life, but through your life to others. It's God's desire for his glory to go out to the ends of the earth. And he's he's pleased to have his glory be radiated and reflected through redeemed people. So this, this whole this whole work of God and salvation in your life was, 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 was not just to fix your relationship with God, but to make you an instrument of God's love to the world. You're tapped in to be poured out. And he's saying here, look, no, nobody's seen God. You, we, you don't see God. We can't see God. But the, here's the way God's seen in the world. It's when we love one another. Jesus said, This is how they will know that you're my disciples, right? When you love one another, the the evidence, the visible evidence of God's love in the world is the love of the church. So brotherly love makes the invisible God visible to the world. And it's God's plan, but it's the kind of love that has to be visible through a demonstration of the self-giving, emptying, other-seeking uh, benefit of, of gospel love. This is what it means to know God. This is what it means to be born of God. Okay, so wonderful summation of the theology of the love of God here. What he said here is, again, a summation of all that he's already been saying. And, and frankly, something that we've talked about in sermons quite a bit as we've studied through this book. But, but here's the big question. How do we love like that, right? How, how, do, how do we take application here and say, if we're going to leave this place having heard and soaked in and been challenged by and encouraged by the theology of God's love, what does it look like to actually do it? Well, if I look at all that theology and I try to bring some application that's rooted in it, it's real simple. I'd say there's, there's two elements to it. One is we have to know each other in order to love each other like that. Right? You can't really love somebody apart from relationship. And related to that, to know somebody, to really get in their life and to know them, is to then step into messiness. And if we look at the example of Jesus, this is what he did. Jesus pitched his tent among us. He came to dwell among us, to reveal to us, to be manifested the life of God to us, to know us. And in order to know us, he had to step into the messiness of our existence, right? He couldn't demonstrate that love for us unless he got into the messiness of our lives, knowing us through that messiness and actually seeking then to do something to bring about a betterment of our lives, to bring us life. He had to step into it and work through it in order to do it. That's not too too profound, is it? It makes sense, right? But here's the thing. That is the hard part. That's the hard part. 
When, when we look around the world, we look around, and I, we don't have to look that far. I mean, we can just look at ourselves. We can look at, within our own spheres of influence, and we can look all the way to the ends of the, wor- the world. And this is what we see. We see a lot of conflict, a lot of division, a lot of, of, of hateful language and behavior towards one another. And, and what we see most often in those situations is that it's, it's easy to form opinions against and act uh, with ill will towards or disregard towards others when you don't know them and you're not willing to step into their mess. When you judge somebody, usually what, what's happening is you're, you're, you're saying, I am going to take a distant uh, analysis of you and, and form an opinion about you, and, which will direct my behavior towards you from this safe distance to which I don't have to really understand your perspective. I don't really have to understand how you got there, what's going on in your heart, what your actual motives are. Because the minute I do that, all of a sudden it, it might mean that my perspective begins to change and I might gain compassion towards you. Oh, we don't want that. That requires action, right? That requires then me to invest. I, I can stay over here and make the assessment because I won't know you and I won't get messy with you. And therefore, love has no soil in which to take root and bloom, right? It's interesting to me that, that uh, a core value of our society uh, seems to be tolerance. But it's, it's a total misnomer, right? Because tolerance, it, I mean, if, if, if we're honest again, we, it sounds good. Just let's, let's just accept people for who they are, their viewpoints, let's all get along. But, but when it really, when the rubber really meets the road, what, what we hear day in and day out is, I'll tolerate you as long as you think like me. Because the minute you don't think like me, then you're a hater, you're a bigot, you're a whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you stand on, what side of a religious spectrum you stand on. We see it over and over again in the dialogue around us, especially on the internet, right? That if you don't think like me, I get to label you as enemy. You're not tolerant unless you're in my camp of tolerance. That's the, that's the tolerance of the world. And, and, and here's the thing, again, that... That doesn't allow us to step into knowing and getting into the messiness of other people's lives. It just allows us to stand back and put walls up. So we say tolerance is a value. It's not. It's a misnomer. Jesus is, is calling us to do something different than just stand at the side and, and even just to tolerate one another. He's saying, no, love one another like I loved you. I know you and stepped into your mess. That's the gospel in action. And it's a really challenging but beautiful thing. That's why I titled the sermon, Messy, Beautiful Love. when When we step into the mess with people, and only when we step into the mess, do we are we then forced to work through with them the differences, the challenges the sacrifices that that love entails. And when we're forced to step in and do that, it begins to produce in us, it has to produce in us a softening of the edges that leads us towards compassion and understanding and care. Look, if I don't know you, I don't really have to care. Right? I mean, that's why driving to work tomorrow morning or driving to school tomorrow morning it will, will put you in an environment where, where there's lots of opportunity to see people uh, be really rude to each other. Because the windows are up. I don't have, I'll never see you again, right? I don't have to talk to you. I don't even have to look at you, but I'll honk my horn at you. I'll stick my uh, particular finger up at you. I'll cut you off. It's easy to do because I don't know you. But if I knew you, what, what if you were driving down Lakeshore Drive and you you cut somebody off or they cut you off and, and the horn went and the finger flew and you, you got up next and you, you, were, you did that look and you realized, oh my gosh, I know that person. <laughs> changes the game, right? It changes the game. 
So it's simple yet profound. We, we have to know each other, and knowing each other means stepping into each other's messiness because that's the fertile soil for love. No greater love is this that, that, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Well, that's stepping into their mess. So as I've been really, I mean, joyfully challenged by that, um, and we all could be challenged by that. I mean, you meditate on that long enough, you're going to get real challenged, right? And as I've been joyfully challenged by that, and as I've asked some questions of, of you, um, some of you for sure, about what this, what this looks like in our context, what does it look like then to love one another at Edgewater and, and in our culture, in our society, in our time and space? Uh, what are some of the, what are the issues? What, what are the hard places where love is, is absent in so many ways? Um, and I'll just, I'll just throw three out. Um, you can talk about this more at lunch if you want to, but here's three. The first one is, is the issue of racial reconciliation, right? That's all, that's in the news. That's been in the news. This whole last year, that's been a huge part of, of what's been in the news. And, and, and again, the, I think the more that we look at that issue, the more we can say with, with some confidence that, you know, the big, probably the big problem with the whole, the whole conversation around racial, racial reconciliation is that there's a lot of people who are unwilling to step into knowledgeable, messy relationships with others. It's really easy to sit on the sidelines and make a judgment it's, it's pretty easy to, to, to form an opinion about, uh, especially in a city like this that's so segregated, to form an opinion about people on the other side of town when I never go on the other side of town. I don't have to step into the issues on the other side of town. I can just form an opinion about what they're like, which is probably going to be negative because that's my sinful bent, right? Though they're not like me, they must be negative. Uh, look at 1 John 3 again. Look at verses 16 to 18. I think this is, this is so relevant to this conversation because so much of the racial reconciliation uh, need around us has got, got lots of layers, economic layers, uh, social conditions. And, and, and look at what he says in verse 16 of chapter 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Here's the gospel again. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Let me read that again. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And as, I, as I've, I've, I've kind of wrestled through those words, and just, again, that, that's a challenging statement, right? If, if you have resources, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily just mean financial, although that's, that's got to be huge uh, up on the list, but, but in any way, shape, or form, if, if there's something that you have that can be shared with a brother in need, and you don't share it, you are the opposite of Jesus. How can the love of God be in you? That's challenging. And I, I was thinking about the Good Samaritan parable that Jesus told. Because again, remember what, what's happening there is, is the questions being asked. What's the great commandment? And this is where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And love your neighbor, love your brother, love your sister, love your neighbor. That's what he said there. That's where he says it. And then there's the follow-up question, well, who's my neighbor? And we're told that the, the one who asked him that question was seeking to justify himself. In other words, you know, let me, let me come up with a way to put some distance between me and the, the seemingly difficult thing you just said, Jesus. Because I'm, I'm pretty good at loving uh, God and, and others, I'm sure. But who's, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What, what's the parable? I, I won't go through the whole thing, but just, just think about what's happening there. It's a picture of racial reconciliation, right? You've got the, you've got the, the Jews, the priest, the Levite, who are coming down from 
Jerusalem, just as this person who gets beat up and robbed is coming down from Jerusalem. Why were they coming down from Jerusalem? Well, you can only come down. You either go up to it or you come down from it. It's, it's on a hill. So if the priest and the Levite were going up to Jerusalem, they were doing their priestly service there, right? They were, they were performing their religious ritual and now they're done and they're coming back which is a poignant thing for Jesus to say because what it's saying is when you're going up to Jerusalem and you're a priest or a Levite, there are purity things that you have to be very cognizant of. You can't go into the temple. You can't perform your duties if you're unclean. And so if you're walking up to Jerusalem and you see a guy who's beat up and maybe dead on the side of the road, to touch him in that condition as you're going up to do your priestly duties, you might have reason to say, I can't do it. But if you're coming down, you have no reason. Your duties are over. And so it's, it's, it's these guys who we see walk to the other side and, and, and just leave this man for dead. And then Jesus says, but a Samaritan who's coming down the way. And when he says that, he's immediately raising the hairs on his listeners because they're going, oh, this is a racial issue. The Samaritans, that's the people on the other side. That's a different race. That's a different culture of people. We don't like them. And it's Jesus who says, this man comes down and he sees this need and he meets it and he exceedingly meets it. He binds up this person. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to and He gives extra money and says, if, if there's any need, I'll come back and I'll pay for that, right? And, and I, I listened to an African-American preacher uh, at, a, at a conference I was at recently who was going through that text and he said something that, that just punched me right between the eyes. And this is what he said. I punched everybody right between the eyes. He said, when that Samaritan came down the hill and he saw this Jewish man beat up in the gutter, he didn't look over him and start quoting statistics about Jew on Jew crime. He just helped him. Which was for this black preacher to say, boy, I'll tell you, in my context, that's what I hear a lot. I see a lot of my brothers and sisters getting beat up and they're in the gutter, and they need help, and I'm hearing from so many others just statistics about black-on-black crime. That's a black problem. Just reasons not to get messy. Man, that... Yes. Shame on us. But no matter what, forget politics, all that stuff. It's just there are people in need, and Jesus is saying to love them is to get messy like I came and got messy with you. Bottom line. That's why the elders and the congregation here, we've talked, we're, we're, we've been passionate over the last couple of years, particularly about really intentionally thinking about what multi-ethnic church looks like. The church, this church has been multi-ethnic for a long time. So I don't mean to say that it's a new thing, but, but just the intentionality of saying, how is that a core part of how the gospel is displayed here? How the love of God is displayed. If, 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 if God has placed us uniquely in this context, which happens to be one of the few racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, truly diverse neighborhoods in this city, and we're a church that, that, that does and can represent that diversity in a way that brings unity to all of that difference through Christ. What an opportunity that is. What an opportunity that is, because it, it's going to get messy. It just will. I mean, we're, we're already starting to see some of that. We'll continue to see some of that. It gets messy, but it's in the mess that we, rather than being afraid of it and saying, oh, this isn't worth it, it's in the mess that we go, you know, this is the soil in which love can bloom. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rub our edges it's going gonna, it's gonna to soften our edges. It's going to cause us to have to deal with stuff in the open that we wouldn't have had to deal with before. And it's going to give us opportunity for love to actually bloom. Grip. Went to a, a gala a couple Saturdays ago for, for Grip, which is a, a ministry in the city that Esteban is a part of, uh, that, that the whole idea was to get to get people from the church to, to step into the public schools, to step into relationships with students, particularly in, in schools that are, that are in need, 
particularly in parts of the city that are in need. That, that would fit into the category here. If, if you have resources but your brother's in need, you can look at some of these neighborhoods and these schools and go, yeah, that's, that's got to be the in need category. But to step into that for the express purpose of knowing somebody and getting messy with somebody, to stepping into issues that, that would be scary to most of us, fatherlessness, drug abuse, prison, gang violence, those kinds of daily realities to get messy with somebody so that there's opportunity for love to bloom. Cross-cultural church partnerships, we, we need to be pursuing those things within our city. And we're trying to do that already, but we need to be more intentional because again, it's going to get messy and that's okay. It's okay. Second practical application uh, that, that I've been challenged with is this one. Uh, right relationships between men and women in the church. And here's why this one's hard. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word. It's messy. It's messy. Because, because the, the pendulum swing on the issue of, of men and women, relationships between men and women in the church, roles of men and women in the church, the pendulum swing seems to often go to the extreme of, uh, you know, uh, misogynistic, chauvinistic oppressiveness. Uh, and that happens in lots and lots of churches. Uh, and it has for ever um, to our shame. And, and, and then it swings the other way to you know, a, a, a theology of, of like, well, it doesn't really matter. There, there, is, there is no distinction at all. Uh, those, are, those are often the pendulum swings within the church. And the, and the, the difficulty is, how do, we, how, do we say, how do we stay biblically faithful to God's design for men and women and recognize that there's differences there and that the Bible's clear about that? And at the same time, the Bible is very clear that, that men and women are equally gifted in Christ and a part of the church to exist and do ministry and gifts and all that stuff in ways that are fruitful and beneficial and freeing and liberating to everybody. And, and as the more I'm, I'm just wrestling through that, I'll, I'll, ma- I'll make a couple of admissions to you. One, it, that, that issue has been harder for me to wrestle with because of the pendulum swings and my own fear. And I know that in order to find that place of right gospel tension, it, it's probably going to be messy. And I'm more and more convinced that um, we need to do that. So let me, let me just say this. On, this is all I'll say at this point, but, um, but the elders have, have been, been talking through that. And I think just challenge of what, like, we, we need to figure this out. Um, and, and if you're a, if you're a female member of Edgewater, you can probably expect this week to get an email, an invitation to a conversation that we want to have with you to start dialoguing together about how do we as your elders and your shepherds really help equip and free you up, uh, and, and encourage you, um, in ways that are, that are honoring and glorifying to, to God and beautiful for the church. So, uh, that's the second application. I'll give you one more because this one is the one that, that's come up with uh, me asking people what, what, what's hard when we talk, think about love and, and this is it. It's how do you love difficult people? Because there's always difficult people, right? <laughs> uh, there's always difficult. Sometimes it's you, by the way. Um, there's always difficult people in the church, right? It's all of us. We're all difficult at times, right? So, so, what does it look like to love difficult people? Let me just give you two quotes, uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll move on. Um, again, uh, Trip Lee uh, spoke at a conference that I was at recently, and, and he said two things that I wrote down. I thought, those are, those are excellent, and I think they fit into this category. Loving difficult people. Here's the first quote. The love Jesus is calling us to is stronger than, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's... You stab me in my back, I'll scratch yours. That's the gospel, right? That's Jesus stepping into the messiness of people who stabbed him in the back and crucified him, and he loves us. It's not you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You stab me in my back, I'll scratch yours. That's Jesus. And difficult people, right? Again, it's easy to love people that that are easy to love. 
But love, gospel love, takes root in the soil of difficulty and messiness. So step into that. Here's the second thing he said that I, I wrote down. It, 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 it fits in what I've just said. But he said, he said, when we brand somebody unlovable and we refuse to love them, we're forgetting the gospel itself. If you think you're too good to lay down your life for people who don't deserve it, I want you to think for a moment about what you're saying about Jesus. Who died for even the worst of sinners. That's convicting, Right? So what is this going to look like for us? I think it looks like a lot of conversations and a lot of, a lot of willingness to step into the fray and get a little bit messy with each other. And when we do this, we have to recognize that we're going to be butting up against uh, some, some doctrinal differences, some theological constraints. We're going to be butting up against some political ideology stuff. We're going to be butting up with all kinds of things, cultural things. Oh my goodness. I mean, what a, what a, what a big thing to butt up against, right? Cultural preferences. We're going to have to do that. But that's where messy love becomes beautiful love. It's the only place where love blooms. And that's, that's what we're being called to. So expect more conversations, expect more opportunities, and don't be afraid of them, okay? Don't be afraid of them. You, you're going to get tempted to have conflict in your interpersonal relationships here within the church because somebody's going to say something that scratches against your cultural understanding, your preference, a, a doctrinal position or whatever. You're going to, you're going to have opportunities to get, to, to be like, ah, I don't, I don't want to talk to that person. Don't do that. Step into it. Be willing with the, with the hope that gospel love will bloom in the midst of that. I had a great uh, uh, finishing analogy. I'll, I'll try to say it shortly because I know we're, we're out of time. Um, but if, 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 if again, you're, you're finally doubting, uh, is this possible? Are we capable of this? Uh, is this something that, that can actually take root uh, here or are we just going to step into a mess that we can never get out of? Let me, let me just remind you that the verse 13 says this, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. You are not alone we are not alone to figure this out on our own. We are indwelled by the love of God. We are indwelled by the Spirit who is sent to be the comforter and the pointer to truth. The, the, the very presence of the God who is love is in us. So have confidence of that and walk by faith in that. Amen.